Hi, everybody. My name is Geneva. Very grateful member of Al-Anon. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the conference for inviting me down here. It's, it's been fun. I have to tell you, though, uh, I'm shaking here, and I'm looking for these six cups of water that the speaker last night had. Uh, I won't need six. But I want to share with you that the ladies on the first row here, we've had a ball. This has got to be the liveliest place in a long time. Uh, we, I met the smile at the airport, like she said, and it was so much fun. And if I'm too loud, I got a big mouth, guys. Just tell me. We had fun, and we came to the hotel, and everything went fine. And you know how hosts are. They always want to take care of you. Well, the first thing she didn't see in the room was an ashtray. And we had unpacked some things, and she said, oh, no, there's no ashtray. <laughs> so we had to move, which was okay. And then last night, I heard a wonderful speaker. He was very good. Thank you. Um, and then we went out. We do what al people do best. We have al meetings in restaurants. And we got together, and Adam up there, the, the guy with the names, the volunteer to speak for me. I don't see him, but uh, he did volunteer. We had a wonderful meal, and we got to share, and it's Sandy and Cheryl, and we just had a wonderful time. I don't know what they're expecting to hear. I'm just going to tell you about Geneva. You invited me to tell you how it was, how it is, and how I'd like it to be. <laughs> In that order. Now, I'd love to tell you I'm, I'm a coal miner's daughter, and uh, everything worked out like the movie, but it didn't. Actually, I am the last of ten kids born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. I am the adult child of an alcoholic. I was the baby child of an alcoholic. I was the teenage child of an alcoholic, and I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. My dad drank all my life. I don't know... Why? Well, I, I don't blame myself. I just know he drank. There's got to be a mean echo in this building. Um, the only thing that touched my life more with the alcohol was at the age of 14 years old. My dad walked in after 20 years of working for a company in Jackson, Mississippi, and said, I'm not working for anybody. He quit his job. How do you support a 14-year-old if you don't work? And I remember my mom saying, sure choice. And that was it. It was traumatic for me. How can you, we were not rich by any means. We were not even well to do. What, what, what was I supposed to eat? I'm a meat eater. You're gonna quit your job at 14? Well, he did just what he said. And I remember having to go to school, not being dressed like the other kids. And I thought it was his fault, because all he had to do was work. But my mom said the man had worked 20 years, and if he wanted to take, you know, stop work, it was okay. I'd understand her. He made a career of getting drunk three times a day. And for all of you that don't think it can be done, my dad was up at 4. He was back by 8.30 and drunk. He slept till 12.30, 1 o'clock. He was up, he got drunk. He came back home about 5.30, and he slept till 9, and he did it again. And this is how his drinking pattern was. 
and I didn't like it very much. My mom thought it was okay. I didn't like it. One of the things that you have to know is when you're in the South and everybody knows everybody, one of the things the kids at school called me was old drunk Ernest's daughter because that's what he was. You see, you got to know me. When I tell you about me, the one thing I learned is if I laughed with them, they wouldn't laugh at me. So I learned in life to laugh with them and laugh louder and harder than they did when they called me these names. So that kind of disappeared because they couldn't get to me. And being the person that I was, the bully, bully, nobody really bothered me, so the ones that I couldn't outlast, I attacked. So who won? I did. Uh, people were my friends, I think, because they feared me, not because they liked me. But that was okay for me. Well, I did this for a long, long time. And I can remember in high school, I had decided that if I couldn't, if I couldn't stop my dad from drinking and my mom wouldn't, what do I do? I drink with him. Now, I've got to tell you, my dad, at one point, bootleg corn liquor, you know that good old white lightning? And I can remember that he had some of the good batch, and I said to him, if you're going to drink, I'm going to drink with you. And he said, okay. The only thing was, my dad had this food jar. I think everybody know what a Knox food jar is. Well, I drank about half and passed out. He drank my other half and his. And the next day, I was dying. But he was fine. And he kept saying, you want some more? And you know what a hangover is? It's when your hair, from the top of your head to the end of your hair to your toenails hurt. And there's nothing you can do about the pain in the middle. And the door and the TV and your vo a voice hurts. Well, I knew then that I wasn't going to be a drinker, but I did have this thing. I was going to get out of this house with this man, and I got to tell you that my life wasn't so bad because being the last of ten, I had older sisters and brothers who gave the me things. My, my brothers and sisters decided that I was their baby, and they bought me the car that my dad should have bought me. My sisters bought me the clothes. And the only stipulation they had on me is that I must go to college. And if I go to college, I wanted my own apartment, and I live right down the street from Jackson State College. If you've ever been in Mississippi, I'm right down the street from Jackson State on Lynch Street. And I said, if you buy me the car and get my own apartment, I'll go. Well, you know me. I fell in love. I fell in love with the man that I married. He, um, he moved from Jackson to Raymond, and I just thought he was just the cutest boy, and he was just so well-mannered, and ah, his family had money. I forgot that part. They had money. And I tried the college thing, and that didn't work for me right then. So I thought, okay, I told him, we're going to get married. And he said, okay. Deep, in his, deep inside, I think that he loved me, but he was a little afraid of me, too. So he, I planned this wedding, and nobody in my family wanted me to get married, but that was okay. But one of the things he did, he drank. My husband drank. And I thought, okay, that's okay, because I'll break him. I'll stop him from drinking. 
you know, just let me get my grips and get the paper signed, and I'll stop him from drinking. You know, we, I'm a prime candidate for Al-Anon. I should have been Al-Anon member 20 years ago, 25 years ago, because the day we got married and we went out for the reception and he got drunk and we came home and he woke up the next morning and he said, What are you doing in my bed? And I said, But we got married yesterday. He said, Oh, I forgot. <laughs> you see, that didn't tell me anything. That did not tell me anything, and it should have told me something. But I was thinking, okay, that's all right. It's your wedding, so you had a right to get drunk. Because, you see, my mom had told me that if a man worked five days a week, he had the right to get drunk. Just that simple. A man works five days a week, he got a right to get drunk on weekends. Well, I was always rebellious. I didn't go along with it then, and I don't go along with it now. But you got to understand, I'm from the South, and mothers are always right. Or so they think. I remember I went back. I moved back home after three weeks of marriage. My husband went out, and we went out to have a nice drink with some friends. And what does an alcoholic do? What, number one thing, he got drunk. And I got mad, and he told me if I didn't like it, tough. He was going to drink to the day he died. So what does an alcoholic person do? You move back home to mama. And I remember moving back into my room, and she said, Honey... That's your husband. And I thought, I don't care. He got drunk. And she said, well, that man works five days a week. He has the right to get drunk. I didn't like it then, and I didn't like it when he came over and said, I'm so sorry. I'll never drink again. I'm not going to do that. I was just celebrating. And I bought it. You know how we bought it? We bought what we wanted to hear. And I moved back with him. And he didn't. Not until that Friday night. He got drunk again, and I got angry, but I didn't go home to Mama because she was going to tell me the same thing. If the man works five days a week, he got a right to get drunk. And I got to tell you, my first time with alcohol, when I got second time, when I got really drunk, and I was sharing this with the ladies last night, my mom had this saying, but she never could finish. She said, if a man got drunk and fell in the mud, the next day he could get up, take a bath and still be a man. But if a woman got drunk and fell in the mud, then she started to shake her fingers. She could never tell me what happens if a woman... I thought when she got up and took a bath, she was still a woman. And I think I wear dentures today because of when, I, when I did ask, I got the back end. So part of my dentures, she owed me money for today. May she rest in peace. I think she loosened these teeth. But um, the day I did it with my husband and my brother... She came by, and we lived in a circle. And every Sunday morning, it was a ritual. She came by and knocked on the door, and she went home and cooked breakfast. Then you were to follow over at her house to eat breakfast and then go to church. But when she knocked on mine, and you got a hangover, and you're grown, you know, you think you are, you say, uh-uh, Ma, I can't go. I'm sick. But American alcoholic, she ain't sick, she drunk. And she snapped. Old girl went off and told me, get up, and you're coming to breakfast, and you're going to church. And when God Jr. speaks, you listen. I drug up, and again, I remember, your hair hurts from your head to your toe hurts. But we went, I went over to her house, and I listened to her mouth. And then we went to church, and she told the minister to preach on the evils of alcohol. 
and he did. And you're sitting there in a church, in a southern church with no air conditioning, and it's 85, and you're already uncomfortable, and the minister wants to t talk about alcohol, and every time you breathe, you smell it. That is not a pretty sight. Well, I thought, I can't do this, so I knew I couldn't drink. So what I could do is to stop my alcoholic from drinking. And in the South, nobody knows anything about alcoholic. Guys, you know, alcoholic was something that, you know, was a lawyer or a doctor, you know, that you read about in a paper. But in Mississippi, it was the man simply drank too much. And that's how, that's how it was. But he drank too much and I didn't like it. I lived with my dad who's an alcoholic, I have three brothers who's an alcoholic, and I can call them alcoholics today, but my husband was not going to be an alcoholic. And I told you that my husband was one of the rich kids. Well, I had this rule, God Jr. II had this rule, that if you go out and you get drunk, I wanted that paycheck, and if you cash the paycheck, I wanted the stub and the money. Well, he, 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 did, he did follow the rules. The only thing is he would leave, he would go get drunk, and he would go by his mother's house and say, you know I can't go home without this money. I need whatever it was the difference in what he had spent, and she would give it to him. Then he would bring it home to me. But she thought I was a bear. Now, my mother-in-law and I never liked each other. We got this hate-hate relationship, which is okay. She thought I was too tough on her son. That, uh, that was her baby son. Oh, by the way, he is the baby in his family as well. I was too tough on her son in that he didn't need to be married to a witch. The only thing is I called her a witch with the beat. So we had a real hate-hate relationship for 20-some years. Well, this man, I remember he got drunk one day, and who know, you, know, you know I love Who's pregnant? The Al-Anon, right? And I moved home with my mom, and she said to me, Well, darling, you're just pregnant. You're not dying. It's no disease. And he's just drinking. Everything's going to be fine. Just leave him alone. Remember now, I lived with your dad for 55 years, and he's always drank, but he's always been your father. Now, do you want to hear that when you're pregnant and don't want to be, and the man you just walked out the house with is drunk? And she's telling you to go back home, it'll be okay. And when I first told her she was a candidate for Al-Anon, she told me no. But if that wasn't a candidate, it was either a candidate for AA Al-Anon. I don't know which one it was, but I didn't want to hear that. But I was pregnant, and he came over, and he told me how much he loved me, and how much he wanted to save me, and how much he wasn't going to drink. And I thought, okay, I can make this work because I just got to stop the man from drinking. And once I stop the man from drinking, I'm fine. Okay, guys, now I'm going to show you the real Geneva. Not this sweet one that's standing here today. But I thought, how do you stop a man from drinking? Well, from the South, the first thing I thought was, every time he comes in here drunk, I'm kicking his ass. And luck would have it, that Friday night he came in drunk as a skunk. You ever know what an extension cord is? I remember taking that extension cord, and I remember whipping him for like 20 minutes. And then I put him to bed. And then he'd wake up the next morning, and he would be all wept and bruised, and 
and, that, and all the things, and would ask me what happened to him. And you know what my answer? How would I know? I wasn't with you last night. <laughs> I got to tell you guys, alcoholics don't learn, because he went out Saturday night and did the same thing. And what did I do? Me and my trusted extension cord. <laughs> I had him again. And I would find him, he would be so sore. I mean, and he would, I could see him, you know, wondering what had happened to him. And he would even ask his friends, are you fighting with somebody? You know, and don't ask me, because I have no idea you weren't with me last night. This went on for about a month, guys. They don't learn quickly, you know. Then I remember this Saturday night he came in, and I thought to myself, oh, I got it again. <laughs> and I remember drawing back the extension cord and coming from over behind the bed. <laughs> well, I drew back the extension cord to hit him, and he wasn't drunk, and he hit me, and I went over behind the bed. And he was standing there laughing. He said, I knew you were doing something to me. He said, I asked everybody. And I knew, and see, he thought it was kind of funny. I mean, I'm lucky. God loves me. Because he thought it was funny. He said, how dare you do that to me? And I said, well, how dare you get drunk? And I said, every time you get drunk, I'm going to get you. Well, he didn't really get drunk. I remember he got high, close to drunk as he could. And then the one or two times he did, he really did get drunk. I didn't do anything because I hadn't thought of anything to do. I had not thought of it. So when he came in, he caught me off guard. So Alamon's minds are not as quick as you think it is. Then I can remember my husband is short. He's a little bitty man. Okay? And the one thing about this alcoholic that I'm married to, he likes to fight. Not women, but six two men. He can never pick on a man his size. And that alcohol told him, you're six two. Hit this man right there because he's six three. Well, God loved him. Because somehow he got away with this stuff. And in his last days, in the south of drinking, I can remember he had attacked this man. And they had been fighting, I mean, they had been fighting the night before. He came home to get his gun. He was notorious for his gun. He came home to get, to get his gun. We were in this place. The parking lot was jammed. So he couldn't get out. When he did get out, he went home to get his gun, and we had settled this, the mess. But he told this guy, if you see my tracks go one way, don't cross them. Go the other way. Turn around and go back the other way. Well, we thought he was kidding, but that alcohol meant what it said. That next week, the guy was there at this lounge, we were, we were there, and the guy came by the table to apologize, because he felt that he had done Bob an injustice. Bob didn't wait. He attacked the man. He just came up to the table and he attacked this man. There was a fight. This guy had a gun. Bob didn't have his. Bob went out to his car. We had taken the gun out of the car. The car was blocked. The guy came up to the window, fired the gun, and the firing pin jumped out the back. And it scared me, but it didn't scare Bob. So he just took the door, he hit the man with the car door, and it was a fight, and he left. We didn't live very far from the place to go get it done. By the time we got the car out, we were able to get the pistol from him, and he got his shotgun, and I would, his mom would, he would take it from his mom and put it back in the car. I'd get it out, he'd take it from me and put it back. And after about 30 minutes of this, he decided to hell with us, because we were really driving him crazy. We didn't want him to get in any trouble. And my family decided that. Bob needed to be away from his, his parents because his mom was his problem, they thought. 
they just, you know, being a, the baby and every on each side, they thought Bob was, I was Bob's problem and Bob was my problem and it was his family's problem and he got out of hand, so we could never be grown in Mississippi and we knew it. So what do we do? Bob says, I'm going to move to Minnesota. I have a brother in Minnesota and that's where I'm going. And I said, fine, go ahead, because I'm not going. Well, he did, he left to go to Minnesota, and I got a call from Chicago, and he said, you now live in Chicago. And I said, no, I don't, I live in Mississippi. And I had two beautiful little girls then, and uh, I was moving to Chicago. And he told me about how wonderful he was doing, he'd gotten his job for Admiral, and then I'm not drinking, you know, and I thought, that might work. But I stayed in, in Mississippi for a while, and my mom said, a wife should be with her husband. Those pearls of wisdom that we don't need. And it's time for you to go to your husband. Now, we had a house in Mississippi, and I loved my house. I, I, you know, I was like ideal. I was right next door to his and right across the street from mine. So that's the ideal spot to live, right, when you don't want responsibility. But I remember she said to me, you have to go with your husband. And I packed up. And I called, called him and said, yes, you were coming. And he told me how he had not had a drink in two or three months and how he'd saved money and he'd gotten his apartment and we were going to do, we were just going to just be the happiest couple in the world. When we stepped off the train, somebody was helping him find us. He was drunk. And I was so angry. And he grabbed his babies and he said, you can come if you want to. I got to Chicago, and the first thing I've got to see is a drunk husband, and I'm angry, and, you know, in the car, I don't know where I'm going. He's got to tell me how to get to where I live, and he was playing with his girls, and he was trying to explain to me that, you know, I was just glad you guys were coming, so I was celebrating. And, you know, deep inside, I bought that until I un we opened the car door where he said we stayed, and there was a bunch of people on that corner standing there with wine bottles and whiskey bottles, and the first thing they said is, what's up, Bob? <laughs> didn't tell me anything. That didn't tell me that this man had lied. But it was okay because I came in to Chicago one day. I went to work the very next day. And I said then, I've moved. I'm going to stop him from drinking. This was my, my task in life. God put me here to stop Bob from drinking. And believe you me, let, I'll share with you some of the things that I've done. And I will not tell you that I have remorse for all of them. Okay? I will not tell you that. Some of them, yes, but not all of them. Because when you're as sick as I am, fun is a major problem. The first time he got drunk in, my, in, my, in our apartment, he was going to fix dinner because I worked on weekends. I was in nursing, so I worked on weekends. And I got a call from my sister-in-law, and she said, Your baby daughter just cursed me out. And I said, Well, where is her dad? She said, I don't know. I called your house, and she cursed me out. So I called my house, and I asked the kids, Where's your daddy? in the living room floor. Well, what is he doing? Sleep. Wake him up. We can't. Well, how long has he been asleep? A long time. So what do I do? Get off work. Come home. He's drunk, as I thought. Well, they told me the way to get an alcoholic sober was to wet him up, right? And I remember my first time thinking, if I take this hose and put it on my kitchen faucet and wet him up, he'll wake up. Well, I did what my mind, first mind told me. I wet him from head to toe. I even tried to put the water up his nose with his hose. But all I accomplished was a soaking wet living room carpet. 
because he didn't get up till he got ready. And I remember having it now, having to clean it. You know how you got all this water and you got to do the steam cleaning now? I just got off work. Do I want to have to steam clean the rug? Didn't dawn on me that I have to do that today. Then the next week, I think, next two weeks after I talked to him and told him I was dealing with this, I remember got another call. Come home. The fire department was there. What was the fire department doing there? He decided that because I was at work, he wanted to cook dinner for me and the kids. And he put it on, and that's all he did. And the smoke was coming out the apartment. The kids were in there, so the fire department had broken down the back door, and they wanted me to come home. And where was he? In the bed. He was drunk. And I remember thinking to myself, I should set him on fire. But the fire department was there. So I didn't get to follow through with that one. But I knew deep down inside, if they hadn't been there, I may have to buy a bed. But I was going to set him on fire. When we did get him around, his sister came and got him and told him that he drank too much and that he needed to slow down, don't drink as much or change his alcohol. And by then I'm angry. I'm away from Mama, and away from my family, and I want to get even. I got sick and tired of being sick and tired long before I heard the phrase. So I said to him, if you want to get drunk, fine, but you're going to pay for every day you get drunk. He worked every day, he came in, he got drunk, and I can remember when I tell you guys that I cut his toenails too short, deliberately. I took my time, I trimmed those toenails till they bled. And then I woke him up and told him to go to the store. And I remember when he put his shoes on, he screamed. And I enjoyed it. You know what happened? He couldn't work for two days. So when an alcoholic can't work for two days, what do they do? They get drunk for two days. That didn't work for me. Then I can remember another incident with his feet. I decided he got drunk. I took off his shoes and I was putting those long wooden matches between his toes. And then I'd light them and I'd blow them out. Okay? Well, I did okay for the first two times. But that third time was a doozy. I couldn't put them out fast enough. <laughs> so I, he ended up with the hot foot. But that woke him up. Like I gotta tell you, that woke him up. <laughs> he simply thought I was crazy. He said to me, you are crazy. I would tell him, don't get drunk. All you got to do is not get drunk. Just every time you come in here drunk, I'm getting you. And then I can remember, it wasn't close to Halloween, so it had to be like August. He got drunk, so what do I do? He passed out in my living room floor, and I thought, how would you look like a woman? How would he look looking like a woman? And my husband had, at that time, you won't believe it now because he's clean, but he had nice hair. So I took the Marcel irons and I curled his hair and I took my makeup and I put him, oh, I fixed him up. He was so cute. And then I put him outside. I remember waking him up to put him outside and slamming the door. And when he got outside, he was like, his friends started laughing and he started laughing. And he went to the mirror on the car to see himself. And he sat there and said, don't I look cute? I'm upset because he's, suppo he's supposed to be angry. His friends are supposed to tell him not to get drunk. But instead, they would, man, you got, your wife is crazy. Your wife got a problem. And he was out there for so long, I had to go beg him, Bob, please come inside. 
So now, that's not going to work for me, right? I thought, I just got to come up with something else. And I can, you guys got to know, an alcoholic is a hard-headed sucker. My husband, I told him that, you know, you bring me the money, I'll pay the bills. You know, he had a car, I had a car. And all you got to do is bring me the money. I'm going to make sure the bills are paid. But you know they hard-headed. Once he didn't bring money home, and I got to tell you that I deliberately emptied the refrigerator. He got paid by the week, and by then he was driving a truck. He got paid by the week. He didn't bring any money home, so I emptied the refrigerator. Everything I couldn't give to the dog, I threw out. You don't bring money, you don't eat. Well, I can remember I had to get up every morning and make, take the kids out to breakfast before they could go to school. Then give them lunch money and then come in from work. Nothing to cook, so I had to take them out to dinner and bring them back. Well, that's kind of rough on your pocketbook, but I just didn't want to feed him. I knew I wasn't going to feed him. And he, he was happy. So I finally asked him after, on Wednesday, what are you eating? He said, I eat at work. And I thought, but what about your family? He said, well, you're doing a good job. They're not hungry. These kids are not hungry. And I thought, you asshole. I am sick of you doing this. No matter what I do, he can make it go turn around on me. I'm the victim here, people. I'm the victim. My kids went home every summer, and I remember saying to him, you have to bring me X amount of dollars, and if you don't bring me, don't, you have to bring God Jr. X amount of dollars, because if you don't, then I'm not going to pay something. And you got to tell you guys, I worked every day, but see, my money was mine. His money was mine. So his money was supposed to do certain things, but my money was only supposed to take care of his I remember thinking, I'm not going to pay the electric bill, and my husband's he's got a lot of pride. You know, and he's prideful out. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to pay the electric bill because the kids went home in June. And it was already passed due. He didn't bring the money. I wasn't going to pay it in July. So I knew in August they were going to shut those lights out. So what I did was I bought me some candles. Notice me. And he came home, and I knew those lights were out. And I was in my, in my den with my candle reading a book. And he said, what happened to the lights? And I said, they shut them off. And he said, well, why did you let them do that? If you don't pay the bill, they shut your lights off, right? And he was thinking, well, does, does the neighbors know? Why would he give this Al-Anon person this idea? If the neighbors knew, I made sure they knew. Because I went out and said, hey, I ain't got no lights. They cut my lights out. And he was like, get now, get now. Uh-uh. I announced to the neighborhood that I didn't have any lights. That they had shut off my lights because Bob wouldn't pay the light bill. And he, I remember him, he said, that next morning, he got up, he, I'll be late for work, he was going to pay the electric bill. And he was talking, he said, then why do you do that? You didn't have to tell people that. We were comfortable here. See, no, because I wouldn't let him use my candle. When I, was, when I finished reading, I took my candle in the bathroom with me. And I took my bath by candlelight. Well, when he asked me if he could use my candle, no. You can't use my candle. And to make sure he couldn't use my candle in the bedroom, I slept in the girls' room. So I heard him bump into a lot of things that gave me pleasure. <laughs> but he did. He went immediately to pay the electric bill the next morning, and he did go to work, guys. Which is one of the few times when I did things to him, he followed the plan. Go pay the electric bill, get the lights back on, and then go to work. Well, this went on for a while, and he was doing fairly well. 
And then he said to me, I told him about the, you know how we do, we sit down and we write these long letters, Dear Five, if you really loved us, you would not think, you would not do A, B, C, and D, and then you put the letters on the table, and then you watch the letter, and you hope he reads it, and if you don't read it, you move it by the coffee pot. And, well, I found out Bob said he never read those things anyway. He put them in garbage. But I wrote, I'd written this letter to him, and I was thinking, this is going to do it. I'm going to talk to you, and you're going to be better. Well, guys, he didn't read the letter because he didn't do anything I asked him to do. And by now, I'm evil. You see, I should be able to stop this man from drinking so I'm evil. And when being a truck driver and he wore cowboy boots, he wore a bottle in his boots. And the drinking had progressed to the point. He went to work one Saturday and the company said to him, you can't drive, Bob, because you're drunk. And he was going to drive his truck because nobody was getting into his truck. He had this thing where he was a smoker, but he didn't smoke in his truck, so nobody could drive that truck with Bob. Well, they finally had to get the owner of the company and the owner said to him, Bob, you cannot drive this truck today. And he attacked the owner of his company. He attacked the man, and when they called me, the man looked like he had been hit by a Mack truck. But he was already gone from the company because they were going to have him arrested. The guy, Marty, told me to tell Bob that he never wanted him at his company again. And Bob had worked for this company for 11 years at the time. He never wanted Bob at his company again. When I saw Bob late that Saturday night, Bob was drunk. He was too drunk to do anything. Bob got up before I could wake up. He went out and he got drunk. It was Sunday morning. And Sunday evening when I saw him, he was still drunk. Well, we went to church and came back. And by the time I got back from church, he was gone. So I never got to tell Bob he was fired. I got a call on my job Monday morning and it was his boss. And he said, do you know where Bob is? And I said, no, I didn't get a chance to tell him he was fired. He said, he's here working. And I was, what? He said, if Bob has enough heart to come into Excel and work, I've got enough heart to let him stay. Now tell me God don't take care of babies and alcoholics. He never knew that he had been fired from this job until we told this story of some years ago and he asked his boss and he said, yeah. He did not remember he had attacked his boss. In fact, he asked the boss, what happened to you? But God takes care of babies and alcoholics, folks. I'm a witness. And being a truck driver at the time, to show you God does not listen to me, I remember praying, he would talk to his friends about coming down those mountains in Montana. They didn't stop till they got to Iowa on ice. And I remember thinking, God, this is the opportunity. Here, let me tell you what I want you to do. When he starts coming down one of these mountains, I don't want him to stop when he gets to Iowa. Send him over one of those mountains. Because the one word I had learned in Chicago was double indemnity. And this was it. Now, God, he's going here this weekend, okay? So here's how I want you to, here's what I want you to do, and here's how I want you to do it. And I gave, I gave God all the direction that he needed. So you can imagine how pissed I was when the man would be walking in the door. I'm waiting on dispatch to call me, because I've already told God what to do. God didn't do it. The one time God did, he was loaded with gasoline. And now nobody knows it. Some people know today in Ryan. Hauling, and go, hauling gasoline, he was loaded. When he came off the ride, he never straightened up. And he went down in, this, in the ramp, and the truck jacked. And he was loaded. This is gasoline, folks. When dispatcher called me and told me to come, they were cutting him out of this truck. And I thought, oh, God, he's dead. I got myself together to go out there to the Dan Ryan. One of the guys was picking me up. 
And I got my little Simex, and I kept thinking, I'm going to be the jazziest widow on the west side of Chicago. <laughs> when they cut him out, this sucker jumped out the truck and said, I feel my whiskey. And I was mad with God. I started crying then, really. These were real tears coming down. How can they cut a man? Fire I mean, it was like seven or eight engines there holding this truck down. And I'm knowing this is what God, I told God to do it. And he gets out the truck with a cup like this, yelling, he spilled his whiskey. I have, new, I have a newspaper clipping I'd like to share with you guys where he did not get a scratch on him and the truck did not explode. God takes care of babies and alcoholics. Well, you know, at this point, what, I'm, what am I thinking? God, if you won't do it, it must be my job. See, I've asked you to do it, and you won't. So it's my turn now. My husband had this thing. You know how we women are about our living room? You pass through, but you don't stop. Well, that was my rule. My husband could get drunk, come in there, and where would he pass out? Right in my living room on my rug. And I'd ask him a couple of times. I got to tell you, he had bought these carpets and stuff, but it was mine. And I remember thinking to him, I d told him, I don't want you on my carpet. I want you to come through, and if you can't come through, then I'll take your front door key. You have to come around the back. Don't stop in here, because you got this one fear that an alcoholic's going to do. That's it. Everybody knows what that one fear is when alcoholic drinks. It's coming up, and it doesn't have any direction when it comes. I was lucky. God sent me some snow. God sent me some snow. Back 1969, that snow in Chicago. Paralyzed everything, right? That snow paralyzed the city, but it didn't paralyze the alcoholic. And what did he do? He went out in the snow with his buddies and he got drunk. And what does an Al-Anon mind think when I'm going past there? Don't people die from pneumonia? So I drug him, and my house is, was a little scraper with one curve. I drug and I drug and I drug this man till I got him out back. And it took me a while, mind you, to drag him from my living room down the steps to put him in the backyard. And there had to be about five feet of snow. So I made sure he was right in the middle. So in case the police had asked, I had his mind too that, you know, he probably wandered out there and fell while he was drunk. Well, I came back inside and I remember saying, Oh, God, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Well, he did. God did let it snow. A man stayed out there for two hours. Came inside, looked at me, went in the bathroom, took a shower, put on his pajamas and went to bed. I'm pissed now. Took my bath, went to bed. He woke up the next morning, he was fine, you know, making coffee. I woke up the next morning, I damn I had pneumonia. I couldn't breathe, head stuff. <laughs> so I'm thinking, <laughs> this is not going to work. And then the last thing, I, well, next to the last thing I tried was, I used to watch this movie called The Twilight Zone. And I thought that was a great movie, Rod Serling. And my husband, as I told you, had this habit of passing out in my living room. And my Al-Anon mind said, put him in the twilight zone. And you know how my husband is one of these people that from head to toe, you know, the underwear and everything has to match. 
Well, I had to undress him out of these work clothes, dress him from head to toe, put on his suit, mess up his shirt, put some lipstick on his collar, take all his dollars out, all the cash out of his pocket, and put in a bunch of change, because when you buy shots of whiskey, they give you a lot of change. So I'd save up change all week. And then I'd put the change in his pocket. Then I'd wake him up and jump on him about this lipstick. I mean, I could raise a hundred dollars worth of hell, folks. I could actually, we could actually have some good fist fights about this lipstick. And he would be wondering, well, where did it come from? And he would say to me, but I ain't been nowhere. I went to the bar after work, this neighborhood bar. There's a bar next door to where I worked. And I came home. I swear to you, I came home. And I would go off. And I got so good, I could tell him who he was with and how he was. I mean, I could, I had this imagination. And guys, I can, I, this man allowed me to do this to him for seven or eight weeks. I got to tell you, I'm not remorseful about that because I had lots of his money. He could barely get to work, have gas money and cigarettes, but he didn't know the difference. So that's why when I tell you that some things I don't regret, I, I, I got to tell you, I got so good at this until I actually felt like there was another woman in his life and would be bitching at him. I'm serious. I don't wear lipstick, but I had several tubes. <laughs> I bought this stuff. <clears throat> I know I was sick. I bought this stuff, guys. And because I didn't wear lipstick, I could put lipstick in the strangest places. God, I could, put, I could do this. I was, a, I was sick. And uh, I remember he would say, Jen, I swear to you, I don't, haven't been with a woman. Ask my friends. How would your friends know unless they wear lipstick? Some of your friends wear lipstick, something I should know about. But that didn't work because after a while he just didn't care anymore. So it was my turn. You know, I told you I told God to take him out. God didn't do it. It was my job. I was so tired of this man. And I was driving me crazy. I was working, but I wasn't working. I was like a zombie. You know, my, I'm, my body's at work, but my mind is at home and with him. And I made up my mind that he had to go. So what I did was I talked to his sisters who was here, and I told them that Bob was in the habit of going off for three or four days. And... Uh, he wouldn't come home and I wouldn't know where he was. Well, I'm here to tell you I was lying because the one thing that alcoholic did was he would come home just to be a pain in the ass. He would come home, but I lied to his sisters because I had this picture I was painting. I had the scenario built up. And I remember thinking the Saturday I was going to do it because his sister always loved to take my kids out to a part of the country. And she had called and said, this weekend I'm going to be off. I want the kids out there. And I thought, fine, I'm going to pick him up Friday after school. And I thought, this is it. I am going to get rid of Bob. And I remember the week before that when he came in, because he does interior decorating as a sideline job, he came in and he had this brand new black and decker saw, orange and black folks. And for a sick man, that was it. I got it. You see... I invited Bob down in the basement, and I already had my garbage bags, I had the Valium, and the beer. You see, the doctor had me on Valiums. He was giving me these blue Valium guys, 
because I had the nerve problem. Bob was an alcoholic, but he didn't care. And I did try to tell the doctor Bob was an alcoholic, but Bob drank too much. But the doctor just thought, well, he needs one less martini or something. He thought, something stupid he said. And he's still my doctor today, by the way. Um, I knew how I was going to do this. I had my car filled with gas. I had to go up a distance, but it was okay. He had a board that he used to cut on, you know? So you put the Valiums in the beer. He's going to drink the beer. You put a few more in there. He's going he's to pass out. And the first thing you do when he passes out, put the, pa- the plastic down and the newspaper, okay? And go for the head. Cut the head off first. Set it over there and wrap it up in this plastic bag. And then you do the arm, you know? Cut it in two places, you know? And then you, you cut Humpty Dumpty up so. They'll never put Humpty Dumpty together again. And then you get in your car and you go way, way north on the other side of Skokie and you put a piece of him. Then you go way, way west and you put another piece. Then you go southeast and then you go south and then you go southwest. And guess what, folks? I knew they would never put Humpty Dumpty together again. And it was okay. I dropped the volumes in the, the beer, the volumes into the beer and the doorbell rang. Now I gotta tell you, we had a lot of friends, but the one rule is you don't come over to my house unless you call because I might have to put up this facade for you if Bob was really drunk. So you called me first. Well, at the door were some friends. And I gotta, you know, I told you that Bob wasn't very talkative until he got the alcohol in him. He comes up to answer the door and they wanna play bid with and he says, come on in, let's play. And the other time he would say, look man, I gotta go to bed, I gotta work tomorrow. But God sent these people to my house, and I don't know today when we talk about it, why they came. But I had Humpty Dumpty strolled all over everywhere. That was my plan. I thought today was the perfect murder. And I got to tell you, he got rid of that black and decker saw. The first time he heard this story, because he still had this saw. And he said every time he would see that saw, he'd start to shake. He got rid of the saw. But that saved Bob that night, or so I thought. And at the very end, I moved out. I couldn't take the alcoholism anymore, the drinking the, and the fighting, and I could fight. And I gotta tell you that I started most of these fights. You know, most people say, well, my husband is, is violent. Bob's wife was violent. See, I started so many, and in fact, to be honest, I probably started 99% of the fight. Cause he couldn't out talk me, he couldn't out cuss me. And the one thing I could get him going with was his mother. So all I had to do was say something about his mama, and it was on. And he couldn't do anything with me because he was drunk. He would always, I could always do it when he was drunk. See, I, today I know God loved me, but back then, I didn't think so. So I would attack this man. And I mean I could attack. I would plan out my strategies. If I start in the kitchen, okay, I'd take this pan. If, I, if I'm in the bathroom, this brush, you know, this brush that we, did back brush. And I was going to beat his brains out with this brush. So there were times we went from the kitchen to the bathroom to the living room, back to the bedroom. We had some good ones. And then he'd get tired and say, why don't you stop? Because I don't want to stop. I want to fight some more. And we'd hit again. And he'd have to get up and start again. Well, we had this one fight and he was winning. So what do you do? You get the gun, right? His gun. And I remember we got to tussling over this gun because when I came out, I wanted to really take him out. 
And he grabbed the gun, and the gun was an automatic, and it started going off. And we found one of the bullets over that kid's bed. So I knew then, and it frightened me, it scared me, that I didn't want to do that. And I said to him, I'm not doing this. And he said, well, I don't want you to shoot me anyway. He didn't feel what I, I was feeling, fear, you know. And I thought, you know, just a little bit more, I could have killed one of my kids, and I didn't want to do this. So I knew the pistols and the guns wasn't, wasn't a good way to do this. And I can remember we had a fight, and he hit me, and I hit this knot on my head. And I called the police. So I put some Vaseline on it so it could shine real good so they could see it. And when they came, I remember saying, take him to jail because he hit me. And I remember this officer saying, well, lady, what did you do? Wrong answer. I didn't ask you that. So I, Bob said to him, come on in, guys. I got some ground rule. Have a drink. Where did they go? In there. So Alanon says, if one, if one won't do, call another one. So they had a drink with Bob. And I called the station again, and they sent me another one, another set. And they was, you know, well, all he needs to do is go to bed. He, lady, he said, but I got a knot. See this knot right here? And then he started showing them, see this stab over here? See this cut here? See this fall here? And I was like, but the, he didn't call you. I did. You know? So they said, well, lady, let the man go to bed. So if you don't get the next one, what do you do? You call another one. Well, then I got the ones I wanted. Two big ones came in, right? And by now I'm in tears. You know, my poor head. Actually, it didn't hurt at all, guys. I, I don't know, but this knot didn't hurt, but I, I can go through this act that I do. And I had this terrible headache, and this knot was that killing me. And the guy said to him, what are you doing? And my, my little, what did I tell you about these six two men? What do you think I'm doing? And this guy said to him, get up. You're going to jail. He said, I don't pay rent there, I pay rent here. And the guy went to pull out his nightstick and he said, I tell you what, if you hit me with that nightstick, one of us is not walking out of here. What happens? Now you ready, they're going to beat his brains out, right? The other officer said, man, don't hit that guy with that nightstick. So I said, everybody get out, just get out. You won't do what I want you to do. You won't beat him up, you won't take him to jail, just get out. Well, folks, they didn't take him to jail. And the one that only one time the police did take him to jail, they took him around the corner, put him out, and he came back. We had a good fight. I, one of our last fights, we had a good fight on a Sunday evening, and it was a good one. And the police came, they took him away, and he came back home, and they came again, they took him away, and we had one last fight in the kitchen. And I remember telling him, if I let you up, because I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting you now. If I let you up off of this floor, will you do right? And he said, yes. Well, I walked outside. I took the kids, and we walked out. And guess what? He comes out of my door with a belt, because he's going to whoop me in front of all my neighbors. And I remember thinking, this is it, because now I'm really going to kill you, because you're showing out in front of the neighbors. And I picked him up, and I put him on this car, and I said to him, I'm going to kill you, Bob. This is it, I'm going to kill you. And we, I took the kids and we walked away. The kids left that weekend because they had become a nervous wreck. See, alcoholism really affects the kids. They had become a nervous wreck. With me, Nutty, and him drinking. So they went away for the weekend, and Bob went out and got drunk. And I remember that Saturday standing in my kitchen, and I had the iron post bed, guys. And I remember thinking, maybe you're tired. I got to cook. I got to wash for the kids for next week and all that. And I walked into my bedroom 
and he was laying like spread eagle. You don't give me those kind of ideas. I remember this, you know what this clothesline is? I remember going out cutting my clothesline. I tied his hands, tied his hands like this and his feet. And I went into my kitchen and I started cutting this chicken. Thinking, what else am I going to fix, fix for dinner other than this chicken? But I knew when I finished that chicken, I was going to get him. And he woke up halfway through and he said, Jim, Jim, turn me loose, turn me loose. And I went to the door and I showed him this butcher knife that I was using. I told him, when I finish this chicken, I'm cutting your throat. Then he started to cry, moan, and groan. So I remember having to close the door because he was so loud, hollering and shit. And I was in there cutting this chicken. And I knew when I finished cutting this chicken, I was cutting his throat. And the devil told me every now and then, because he'd be so loud hollering, go show him this knife and tell him to shut up. Because see, when I finish cutting this chicken, I'm cutting your throat. And I remember that man was screaming, and he, I remember the, 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 the pain that he was screaming. I was thinking to myself, I'm getting even with him, because I was really going to cut his throat. So your kids don't follow the rules either. Well, one of my daughters got into one of these things, and I mean, I, I was at the door with this knife, with this great big butcher knife, and the kids came and ran. They ran into the house. Uh, they didn't want to stay out to Aunt Zadie today. Aunt Zadie pissed them off. So I had to untie him real fast, you know, and he was like, what is wrong with you? You have lost your mind. And I said, no, I haven't. I'm tired. I'm just tired. And that time when I moved, I knew basically that I wasn't going to come back to that house anymore because I was tired. I wanted a divorce, and I did see a lawyer. The only hardship on me was that the kids' school was right next to the house, and I was living uh, I had to come every morning and pick them up and that kind of thing. So... I remember thinking, uh-uh, I'm not going to leave my house. I'm going back to my house. But I can make his life so much hell, he'll leave. Now, if that ain't hell already, you know what I had in mind. And I remember putting a ribbon down the center of my house like this auditorium is divided. And I told him, this is your half and this is my house. Half. And I don't want you coming over my half of the house for nothing. And if I catch you over here, I'll kill you. Well, that didn't last very long, folks, because I got one bathroom and it was on his side. So I had to eat my crow and roll up my little ribbon. But I did tell him this is it. And he said to me, I'm going to drink until the day I die. And I said, okay, and your days might be numbered. But my cousin called me and she said, you don't need to do this. You need to come back until the divorce is settled. Let the lawyer do it. And we left again that day and he called my daughter and he said, call AA for me. Please call AA. Look up the phone number and call. And she did. And AA told her, your daddy has to call. You can't call for him. And she called over and she gave me the number and she she told me, Daddy, you got to do right. Daddy, you got to stop drinking. Daddy, Mama's going to kill you. Daddy, stop. And he called AA, and I just couldn't see myself having to get up in the morning at 5, take the kids to school. They had to wait an hour. So I went back home. And when I got back home, he said, uh, Jen, I'm going to go to AA. I've had my last drink. And I told him, I don't care what you had. But his phone rang. We have two phones in our house. He has his phone, and I have mine. His phone rang, and God let me answer that phone because I was just pissed off. And there was a man on the phone. He said, may I speak to Bob? And I said, who's calling? He said, it's Jim. May I speak to Bob? I said, Jim from where? He said, lady, it's Jim. May I speak to Bob? I said, Jim from where? He said, lady, I didn't ask for you. Is Bob there? I said, yes, he is. And if you don't tell me where you're from, you're not going to talk to Bob and hung up the phone. And he called back again, and I answered the phone. He said, may I speak to Bob? And I said, who's this? And he said, this is Jim. And I said, unless you tell me where you're from, you're not speaking to Bob. And he said, lady, would you just let me speak to Bob? And I said, nope. 
and I hung up the phone. Well, I guess I blinked and went to the bathroom or something, because when I came back, Bob was on the phone. And Bob said, Jen, that, that man was from AA. And I said, I didn't care. He could have told me. And he said, well, Jen, it's a thing where they don't think it's any of your business. I said, well, lighty dotty. So he told me, Jen, I'm going to the, I'm gonna go to an AA meeting tonight. And I told him, I don't care where you go. And he did. He went to AA meeting that night and the next 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 night. And you know an alcoholic don't supposed to do nothing continuously. After about 30 days and he's coming in saying, how Jen, all you have to do is not take the first drink and die. Who, who cares? You cannot, you mean you can do good for a couple of months, two months, but you can't do it. And I didn't care if you did. But folks, after about, I think he made 45 meetings in 45 days. And now he's starting to look like a person again. In 45 days, he's gained a little weight and took a bath more than once a week. And he started to, so now what, what does this sick mind say? Uh-uh, you must be going to see a woman. So therefore, here's the rule. When you go out the door, you kiss me. When you come out, come back in the house. If, even if I'm asleep, you kiss me because I want to see if you've got alcohol on your breath or perfume. And he was dumb enough to do it. And every day he'd come back, he was, I couldn't smell perfume. I couldn't smell alcohol. So this sick man said, follow him. And the first time I followed him, I followed him to Loretta Hospital. And they put in the parking lot. And these guys got out. And they went into the meeting. I was fine. The next night, he went to St. Angela. And as he parked, there was two women, AA members. They parked. And what does an AA woman do when she sees an AA man? She hugs him. And uh-oh, I jumped out the car. I clown. <laughs> I went off on these women. Yeah, that's what this is all about. That's why he's here, because you're hugging on my husband. That woman said to me, but this is a hugging and, hugging and loving program. I said, yeah, and I see you doing your share. <laughs> I remember saying to her, do you know your man's mind? <laughs> Guys, know today I love that woman. She, she did not, nobody, you know, hey, this, this woman was God sent. She didn't argue with me. She didn't say anything. She just walked into the AA meeting. And Bob was like, Jen, it's not what you think. But it's confirmed in my mind. Now, this is why you're going to these meetings. And then some of his friends from AA, his newfound friends came over. And they were sitting at the kitchen table and they were talking about AA and one was an old-timer, and one had been in the program a year, and Bob was like the baby. And you know how AA wants to help their babies? So they were selling them all the things that AA could provide, and there was ways to do. You could do anything you wanted to do in, in life, but you didn't have to drink to do it. You didn't need alcohol to do it. And I was sitting there listening to this garbage, because they didn't know Bob. Well, God loved me, because after he'd been in the program for a few months, the AAZ, some club had a banquet. The uh, West Section Club had a banquet. And he came in that night and he said, Jen, I want you to go to the banquet with me this weekend. It's an AA banquet. I told him, uh-uh, I'm not going over there with all them drunks. And he said, well, the other wives and husbands are coming in. We'd like for you to come. I told you I'm not going around all those drunks. It's enough with you, okay? And then he said what gets me every time, Jen, if you go, I'll buy you a new outfit. <laughs> I said, throw in his shoes and I'll go. <laughs> and he did. And I went. And I went into an auditorium much like this. And I remember coming in the door thinking, yep, that's a drunk. He didn't call Miss Hale. Yes, she a drunk. Her shoes ain't clean. Yep. That's... And he was like, don't do this. Please, don't do this. And I walked up and I was like, 
holier than thou, all these trunks in this room. And I'm, they set me at this table, and the lady that was sitting next to me, she said, baby, I know how you feel. That got my attention. And I said, these alcoholics, and she said, yeah, you're right. She said, most of these are alcoholics. She said, but I attend a meeting that I think you need to come to. And now she got me going. My ears are this big. You see, she didn't tell me that this meeting was going to show me how to beat up or make an alcoholic's life worse. But that's what I heard. I heard her telling me, we're going to show you how to beat him up. We're going to show you how to abuse him. We're going to show you how to divorce him. This is what I was hearing from her. And I was like, oh yeah, when you say a word, Wednesday night, and it's Saturday night. Here, take my phone number. People, let me tell you something. If you're not serious about Al-Anon, never give an Al-Anon member your phone number. You see, that woman had me sitting there, and I was so hooked on whatever she was saying. I was like, this is for me. I couldn't wait till that Wednesday night, and I'm asking her questions. Up until the people off the podium walked off, and they walked around, and she said, Geneva, let me introduce you to my husband, Al, my beloved, my beloved alcoholic. And I'm thinking to myself, beloved, beloved and alcoholic have never gone together, folks. They've been a whole lot of other bees, but beloved wasn't the one. And I'm looking at her, and she's just nice to this man, and he's nice to her. But you told me he was an alcoholic. She said, he is an alcoholic. I mean, you're talking nice to him. You know, you're not even being rude to him or calling him anything funny. And then I thought, uh-uh. Maybe he wasn't the same kind of alcoholic Bob was, okay? But at any rate, I didn't want to go to this meeting now because that's not what, you know, it was about. But I remember thinking to myself, beloved alcoholic. You know, this is not right. But the lady called me that Sunday and she said, Hi, this is Aileen and I just want to tell you the meeting this Wednesday night. And I went, uh-huh, bye. I'm going to phone, I ain't going nowhere. And then that Monday she called. Hi, this is Aileen. See how your day was going? Fine. But I knew I wasn't going to that meeting. That Tuesday she called. Same script. That Wednesday she called at 5 o'clock. Hi, this is Aileen. Just telling you the meeting starts at 8 o'clock. And I said, okay, fine, hung up, I ain't going nowhere. So Bob said, well, Jim, why don't you go to the meeting? For what? I don't want to go to that meeting. She called at six. I know you should be getting ready by now, aren't you? This woman called at seven. Listen, Al and I have got to pass that way, so why don't we swing by and get you and Bob? I was like, forget it, I got up my car, I'll be there. Well, I did. I walked into the Red Hospital and they have what we call the bridge. There's an AA meeting this way, there's an Alateen meeting this way, and then there's this wide Alamon meeting. It's right across the hall from each other. It's really neat. And I walked into this meeting, and I sat down, and I saw Aileen, and she said, Welcome, baby. I'm glad you came. And they got into the serenity prayer, which I've heard before, and that kind of stuff. Then they get around to the topic for the night. I want you guys to know, my very first meeting, the topic was insanity. God took me to a meeting that had a topic of insanity. And I said, yeah, you guys are all insane for being here. They let the newcomer speak. I think my watch is wrong. They let the newcomer speak, but I'm going to close anyway. Uh, <laughs> they let me say to them, you guys are insane for being here. You're sitting around this table going around, yes, I'm insane because I did this. Yes, I'm insane because I did that. 
Well, hell, you wouldn't have done any of that stuff if they hadn't been drunk. So you're not insane. Let me tell you, you're not insane. And whosoever's telling you this stuff is full of it. And this one lady said to me, I had Aileen on this side of me who invited me to the meeting. And this lady over here said to me, you ain't so tough. And I told her, you ain't so tough either. She says, and there's hope for you. And I said, there's none for you. She said, I tell you what, come back again. I told her, you, ain't got, you ain't said nothing but a word. Because I would come back. And I remember at the end of this meeting, they said the Lord's Prayer, and they said keep coming back, and they went around to get a hug, and somebody came to hug me, and I said, I, I, I don't mess around. See, I just knew then that they were all gay, because that's why it was all insane. So I didn't let them hug me that first night either. Told you I was sick. So they gave me these pieces of paper, and this, this lady told me, try these 12 steps. Okay, so I went home and I took all them 12 steps and I read all this stuff and I put it down. I came back that next week because this tough cookie right here had no idea this woman had 20 some years in the program, God. This tough, this tough cookie right here. I'm telling them about how when they let me talk, they always let the newcomers talk. That's where they mess up, I think. <laughs> told me, she said, I said, I took all these steps last week. She said, now that you start, now that you say you took them, start, that you've taken them, start working them. I said, what nothing to do with that? She admit you if I was other than And she said, now that you said you've taken these steps, I want you to start working these steps. And I said, if you do it, I can do it. And Aileen said, baby, it can be done. See, I had the devil over here and I had an angel over here. Aileen had this real soft voice. She never, voice never got above a whisper, but she made her point quite well. On the other hand, Marlene was one of these tough cookies, and I needed her. Because, see, she dared me to try this program. And you know the miracle happened. Celebrate the miracle. I love this thing, guys. I can celebrate the miracle because I am the miracle. I went from a nutcase to where I am today. And I'm not real well today, but I am better. You see, because of this lady daring me, I tried Eleanor. And because this lady working with me, I stayed in Al-Anon. And these two people ended up being my sponsors. They sponsored the worst person in the world. You see, I took the fourth step with this lady right here. And she said to me, when I finished, I said, now what do I say? What grade do I get? She said, a hug. I took my fourth step with this one over here, my fifth step with this one over here, and I said, what grade do I get? She said, what do you want? And I said, but she don't give me but. I have a pen today that says but, because that's the word they never want me to use. Yeah, but. Tell me to drop that but from my vocabulary. And that this, after a while, this program started to make me feel better. And I was so wrapped up in Al-Anon. You know how little Al-Anon is dangerous, folks. I was so wrapped up in Al-Anon, I read everything I could get my hands on. Then I had these two people calling me on a regular basis, and I would call them. And they would even call me at 9 o'clock at night and say, what did the old dad say today? So you know you would have to have read that old dad. And Marlene would give me different little pamphlets to read, and she would say, read these pamphlets. And I would read them, and I got hooked. I got so hooked on Al-Anon in Geneva, and especially when they told me it was a selfish program, that I didn't have to worry about the alcoholic, that the kids weren't going to die, that God was in control, I could just get back. And they gave me the sign to put on my refrigerator and it says, Dear Geneva, God doesn't need your help today. And they gave me all these kind of little buttons and these little pearls of wisdom that I had to use every day. 
And one of them was, mind your own business. No matter what I would call them and tell them, if it wasn't my business, that tough love went for the program people because it's not your business. After a while, I got so good, I became a GR of my group. Group representative, that boring person that stands up and tell y'all all this stuff that you don't want to hear, no way. But after a while, I figured if I put some life into it, you guys might want to hear it. And then I went from GR to DR. I was district representative from my area. And then I got elected on the policy board of Northern Illinois as your area group, as the area group secretary. And then I got elected as alternate delegate. And today I'm the delegate for Northern Illinois. But for the grace of God and help for this program, I don't know what Bob's doing today. I don't know what these girls are doing today, but I don't care. I'm here in Atlanta having a ball because of Alana. I've met all these wonderful people here because of Alana. You see, I am a miracle. If it can help me, it can help anybody. And that's what I tell the people I sponsor, my pigeons. If Alanon helps me, it can help anybody. I got to share with you too that the people I pointed out that day in that auditorium were not alcoholics. They were people like me visiting. And they let me know this. The guy that I wouldn't have talked about is Bob sponsor today. His name is James B. Jim B. He said that he was going to stay on that phone all night if he had you to talk to Bob. He tells me that today. The lady that I wanted to attack about hugging my husband is my husband's service sponsor. And it's a big joke sometimes she'll hug him and say, nah. She works with me too. You see, this program is a wonderful program. It'll work if you allow it to work. And the one thing I see down here in Atlanta, which is hard for me to see in Chicago, is the cooperation with AA and al See, Chicago AA people think we're still the scum of the earth, folks. <laughs> but I keep saying, I keep inviting them to meetings, and eventually I'm going to change their minds. But I see the unity down here, and it's great. AA and Al-Anon is practically one. I heard some people on a meeting last night I went to where they were raving about Al-Anon, and my chest was sticking out because I was hoping they'd come to Chicago and tell these folks in Chicago <laughs> that we're not so bad. Before I close, I'm closing, I'd like to tell you that I'd like to stand here and tell you that today my life is so great, that everything is so in order, and, and that life is like this big bed of roses, but it's not. After a lot of years in this program, God blessed me with an addictive daughter. I have a 25-year-old junkie, 26-year-old junkie. But for the grace of God and help of this program, that's her life. You see, when I was dealing with the alcoholic, that, the alcoholic belonged to somebody else. It wasn't mine. But when it came to mine, I thought things have to be different because this is mine. This is my child. So there's got to be something I can do. I can't put Alan on to work on this kid because she's mine. I could give Bob back to his mama, but I couldn't give Robbie back to anybody. But for the grace of God, when I went on my knees and I said, God, I need your guidance. This is my child, and I love her but I don't know what I can do for her. So if you don't tell me, I won't know what to do. And I got the answer. You are powerless over people, places, and things. It didn't say what person I was powerless over. It said I was powerless. So that's when you have to exercise some tough love and say, baby, I love you, but there will be no drugs in this house. And if you choose to use them, then you've got to leave. And you have to leave now. And she opted to use drugs. 
And I remember thinking to myself that that kid's going to go out here and I'm going to find her in a garbage can. Somebody's going to come and tell me she's dead. And when I went on my knees and I said, God, somebody's going to ring this doorbell because I put her out and they're going to say she's dead. And I remember this feeling that came over me and said, but it would be my decision, not yours. And I remember getting up thinking, dear God, thy will be done. And that's how I end my prayer every night. Not just for my daughter, but for a lot of other people. Your will is going to be done. You don't need my help today. My daughter does not understand it. She thinks that I should be worried and crying and looking for her. But you see, I don't take you to dope houses. I don't take you to meetings. I love you unconditionally. You cannot come to my house. Because when you come to my house, you take things. I love you, but you can't come here. And I always try and tell her when I see her, I love you, but I'm not your patsy. And today, like I said, I'm here in Atlanta, and I wanted to share that with you because I, I know how it is when you don't have an outlet. God, Elanon was mine. Some people don't have the outlet to turn it over. If you don't have an outlet, find one. He's never busy. You just have to be careful what you pray for, because you just might get it. And with that, I thank you for asking me.